Our scripture reading will be taken tonight from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. And I will be reading from the King James Version. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Tonight I want to direct your minds to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. We're going to look tonight specifically at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. The theme of our study tonight is titled, When You Get to Gethsemane. Prior to Jesus dying on the cross, we read of Jesus going to a place called Gethsemane. And we're going to talk about the experience that he had in Gethsemane. And we want to think very deeply about this serious point and time in his life. I do want to mention before we begin that we kicked off SOS again this afternoon. We had been somewhat out of pocket the last couple of months due to the situation here at the building, but now that our things are now that things are beginning to take shape, we're going to try to resume our regular studies the first and third Sundays of every month at 5 p.m. We had an excellent turnout tonight, and we hope to have a great turnout again two weeks from tonight. But please be marking your calendars that SOS has resumed, and we want to do everything that we can to build on this class. All right, tonight we look at Matthew 26, and we think about the theme, When You Get to Gethsemane. As I said a moment ago, prior to going to the cross of Calvary, we read of Jesus and three of his very close disciples going to the Garden of Gethsemane, located not very far from the city of Jerusalem. And it was in the Garden that Jesus literally poured out his heart to Almighty God. In Hebrews chapter 5 at verse 7, the Bible talks about who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and tears or supplications with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard in that he feared. Jesus was about to experience Golgotha on behalf of the human family. The sins of the world would literally be placed upon his sinless head. And so we read of him pouring out his heart to Jehovah God. And I think about those of us who comprise the human family today. And it's true, we experience difficulties, trials, and tribulations in life. And so the question is not, will we go to Gethsemane, but when we get to Gethsemane, because all of us, like Jesus, will experience moments like he experienced in the garden. And so when we face those difficult times in life, how do we, how do we, how do we face them? Are we equipped to face the Gethsemanes of life? 
Let me offer for you some suggestions that I believe are found in Matthew 26. When we look at the life of Jesus, we can see a pattern for how we should encounter difficulties in life. The first thing that I call your attention to is the people in Gethsemane. Look, if you would, at verse 36. In verse 36, the Bible says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. The first thing that I want you and I to see together is that when we face those difficult moments in life, when we face the Gethsemanes of life, what we need to, to surround ourselves with are God's people, that being saints, Christians. And you might ask the question, why do we need people with us in times of trial or in times of trouble? Well, I believe that we need them for support. Think about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We can go back and look at John 17, his prayer to the Father. And Jesus, in the shadow of the cross, pours out his heart to God. His desire was that people might come to know him and his heavenly Father. He prayed for unity among all them that would follow the words of the apostles. But when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he surrounded himself with three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. I don't think that, I don't think that this was something that was done in a haphazard manner or way. But rather, I believe that Jesus very carefully chose these men to go to the garden with him. Think back, if you would, in Matthew 17, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop. Who did he take with him? The Bible tells us that he took with him Peter, James, and John. Some have called these men the inner three disciples. Jesus took these men, I believe, for a reason. And one of the reasons, as I su suggested a moment ago, was for support. Note, if you would, what he says to the disciples. In verse 38, he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus is about to experience death on behalf of the human family. He's going to be separated from his heavenly father for the first time. And so he needs support. When you and I face crises in life, is it not the case that we want, we want people around us? Now, two things come to my mind in relationship to this setting. The first has to do with their presence. Here were men that had spent some three years with Jesus. And they had seen firsthand the great works that he had performed. The miracles. The healing of the sick. 
restoring sight to the blind. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had seen that. The Apostle Peter, you recall, on a couple of occasions, affirmed that he believed Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. These men had been his confidants. They had been his comrades. And they had formed a very close bond. And so Jesus wanted them with him. There is strength in the presence of God's people. And so Jesus chose these men to be with him. You know, Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 2 that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In verse 10 of that same chapter, he said, Let us, as we have opportunity, do good unto all men. You and I have the opportunity to be burden bearers. We can, we can help one another. A great example of this is found in the book of Job. In chapter 1, we read of Job being stripped of his family members. He lost his children, seven sons and three daughters. We also read of him losing a great deal of his wealth. In chapter 2, the Bible talks about how he lost his health. His own wife said, curse God and die. The latter part of chapter 2, though, we read about the three friends of Job. And the Bible says they made an appointment to come together to mourn with him. They came to offer their presence, their support. And so, I believe that in times of difficulty, we need people with us when we face times of Gethsemane. But then also, not only do we need one another's presence, but we need one another's prayers. Look again at what Jesus says to these men that we call apostles. In verse 41, Jesus said to them, watch and pray. Now Paul makes an interesting request of the saints in Thessalonica in the long ago. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, he said, Brethren, pray for us. When you experience the Gethsemanes of life, when those difficult moments in life come your way, one of the things that you can do, one of the things that I can do, is ask fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to pray on our behalf. Isn't it encouraging to know that we have not just the privilege of prayer ourselves, but to know that other people can be praying on our behalf. When I read in the New Testament, one of the things that strikes me is that the early church, they were people of prayer. They were constantly praying to Jehovah God. And not only were they praying to God in relationship to their own needs and wants and desires, but they were praying for one another. Look at the life of Paul. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said he prayed for these people on a regular basis in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 at verse 2. And so when you experience those trials in life, when you experience the Gethsemanes of life, what you need is support, the support of fellow saints. And they can support you by their presence, and by their prayers. But then there's a second thing 
that comes to mind. And that has to do with our prayers in Gethsemane. Just a moment ago, we were talking about the prayers of others in our behalf or on our behalf. But Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. As a matter of fact, you'll find three times Jesus bowing and praying to God the Father. And so we think about his supplications. Note, if you would, the contents of Jesus' prayer. Picking up in verse 39. The Bible says that Jesus went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, a second time, Jesus prayed, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then in verse 44, he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. What do you take from that? If I were to ask you, what would be your interpretation of Jesus praying to God the Father these three times, what would you say? There are some things that I draw from this passage. Number one, I'm reminded of the privilege of prayer. The thing that really stands out to me is Jesus was a man of prayer. This, was not, this wasn't some isolated incident in the life of the Son of God. This was not some remote time in his life when he decided, you know what, I need to pray to God, the Father. No, just look at, look at his life as a whole. When we read in, in the New Testament of, of his earthly ministry over the course of about three years, in Luke chapter 4 we read of Jesus beginning his earthly ministry at the age of 30. One of the things that you're going to find out is Jesus was a man of prayer. In Mark 1 verse 35, the Bible talks about Jesus arising a great while before day. And going out into a solitary place and there praying to God the Father. What was Jesus doing? Well, he was getting up early in the morning. Going out into that solitary place to a, a place where he could be alone with his thoughts and with his God. And he prayed. Also in Luke 5 verse 14. The Bible talks about how Jesus often withdrew into the desert and there prayed. Here was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Word, the Logos, the one who existed throughout, who has existed throughout all of time, right alongside God the Father and the Holy Spirit, spending time communing with his heavenly Father in prayer. And then also in Luke 6, verse 12. Did you know that before Jesus ever selected the twelve apostles? The Bible says he spent the night in prayer to God. Just a moment ago when we had class, we talked about prayer. And during the course of our class, the question was raised, have you ever spent the night in prayer to God? I freely confess I have never spent the night in prayer to God. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. As a matter of fact, it would be advisable. But Jesus spent the night in prayer to God. Prayer is a great privilege. 
As a matter of fact, Peter said, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers in 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 12. You just think about what a great privilege it is to pray to God. Are you facing a Gethsemane in your own life? Are you facing some type of, of crisis? Sometime, some, some times of difficulty, hardship? Here's what you need to do. Pray. Prayer is a privilege. But then not just do we think about the privilege of prayer, but the power of prayer. Look again at what Jesus said to God the Father in his prayer. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus believed in the power of prayer. Otherwise, he would have never said to God the Father, look, if there's some other way that your will can be accomplished, then let that will take precedence. Let that way come to pass. Now, you and I know that that was God's foreordained way to remedy the problem of sin. But Jesus believed in the power of prayer. And I think you and I need to believe. We need to, to understand that there is power in getting on our knees and praying to God the Father. How do I know that there's power in prayer? Let me give you two verses. The first is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the writer said, Let us therefore draw boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we typically define grace, we usually say it is unmerited favor. That is, the unmerited favor of God. But I remember a professor that I had in college, Carol Ellis, who defined grace in these words. He said, it is somebody doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Now, to me, that really sums up what grace means. Also, it underscores the power of prayer. When I'm going to God in prayer, I am standing in the presence of Jehovah God, an omnipotent God, that is, He's all-powerful, an omniscient God, that is, He is all-knowing, an omnipresent God, in other words, He is ever-present. And I am approaching His throne in full recognition that He has the power to change lives. God wants us to pray. And I believe that the reason he wants us to pray is because there is tremendous power in prayer. Now let me give you another verse. In James chapter 5, verse 16, James said, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What did James mean when he, says, when he said that the effective, fervent prayer of a, of a righteous man avails much? Two words. Here's what James is saying. Prayer works. If you want to just sum it up, that's what he's saying. Prayer works. Why does it work? Because it's powerful. It is a tremendous tool that has been made available to us as the people of God. And so we, like Jesus, when we experience places like Gethsemane in our own lives, what can we do? We can pray to God. Why? Because it is a privilege. Because it is powerful. But then there's a third thing that I think we see in, in the prayers of Jesus. And that is 
persistence. Now, here's what Luke said. And Luke is, is simply putting in print or on paper what Jesus himself said. Jesus said that men ought always to pray and not faint. And by that he's simply saying to us that we need to have a steadfast life of prayer. We need to be persistent in it. Paul said it this way, pray without ceasing. Now, what about Jesus? Well, look, at, look again at verse 39. In verse 39, Jesus prayed to God the Father, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, a second time, verse 42, He went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then look again at verse 44. So he left them, went away again, and prayed, what? The third time, saying the same words. Now that is persistence in prayer. How persistent are you in your prayer life? Now, do I believe in the power of prayer? Yes, I do. Do I believe that we need to be persistent in our prayer lives? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus was. And because Jesus wants us as his people to be persistent. In Colossians 4 verse 2, the Bible says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, watching therein, with thanksgiving. And so the idea is that we pray to Jehovah God in a persistent, in a regular way, that we have a regular prayer life. Think about how God communicates to us. He communicates to us through His Word. How then do we communicate to Him? Well, we communicate to God by way of prayer. And so we communicate our wants, our wishes, our will, our desires, our needs, our heartaches, our sorrows, whatever the case may be. But we do so in a persistent way. Now, here's something maybe we would do well to remember. When we talk about persistence in prayer, we need to appreciate the fact that God never wearies from hearing our prayers. Now, there are occasions in life when people can be somewhat uh, pesty, I, I guess you could say. In, uh, in other words, they'll pester you. Maybe somebody wants something from you, or maybe they're, they're constantly asking you a question, or they need your help. And they're, they're always calling you on the phone, or they're always walking across the street and banging on your door and asking for this or asking for that. And after a period of time, you know what? You grow wearisome of them. Well, God never grows weary of your prayers. The Bible says in Proverbs 15 at verse 8 that God delights in our prayers. God wants to hear from us. And listen, we could pray to God 24-7. And that would not be too much. And so persistent in our prayer life. But then thirdly, let me call your attention to his plea in Gethsemane. And really his plea ought to be our plea when we face the Gethsemanes of life. 
And by that we're talking about the submissive nature of Jesus. Look again at verse 39. You know, there's, there is, uh, there's power in repetition. The more we read things, the more we think on things, I, I believe, uh, the, the better we understand them. And so in verse 39, Jesus prayed to God the Father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now listen to him. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, verse 42. My Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44. Jesus again prayed, saying the same words. And I believe those same words would have encompassed your will be done. We can always, as a people of God, have our say. We may not always get our way, but we can at least have our say. When we experience the Gethsemanes of life, you and I have the opportunity to pray to Jehovah God. But ultimately, we need to allow the will of God to take precedence in our lives. How then does this relate to me? When, when I think about Jesus and his plea to God the Father in relationship to the redemptive plan taking place. Jesus said, look, if there's some other way, let that way come to pass. But if not, let your will be done. When we pray to God, we can express our wants, our needs, our wishes, but ultimately we yield to His will. Now, have you ever thought that when we pray in a submissive way that that maybe, maybe God doesn't necessarily answer us the way we want, but there's a silver lining in the way that it does answer it? Let me put it another way. Maybe God is using the Gethsemanes of life to teach us some things. When you and I go through the Gethsemanes of life, we can grow and we can learn from the various trials and tribulations that, that come our way from day to day. Let me just offer for you four things that I believe can come about when we experience the Gethsemanes of life. Number one, when we face the Gethsemanes of life, it can help us to develop what the Bible calls patience or perseverance. In James chapter 1 at verse 2, James said, Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into manifold trials, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience or perseverance. Why do we need patience or perseverance? Now, Paul said in, in Romans chapter 5 at verse 3 that tribulation works patience. Why do we as the people of God need this spirit of patience or perseverance? Because living for the Lord is not always easy. Life is not a bed of roses. Just because you obey the gospel and just because you're trying to live the Christian life does not mean that you're not going to ever face any kind of hardship or any kind of trouble. As a matter of fact, you may face more hardship and more trouble because of your faith in the Lord. 
And so the trials of life, the Gethsemanes of life, can help develop within us this spirit of patience or perseverance. Go back and look at the life of Job. When you look at the life of Job, think about everything that he lost. Job had seven sons and three daughters, and he buried all of them at the same time. Job was a very wealthy man. Guess what? He lost all of that wealth, or a great portion of that wealth. Job, I assume, was a fairly healthy man, and yet he lost his health. Now, do you not think that Job experienced something like a Gethsemane? Well, how did Job react? What lessons do you think Job took from those circumstances that he encountered in his lifetime? I can tell you one of the things that, that came about as a result of what he experienced. It's called patience or perseverance. How do I know that? Because here's what James said in chapter 5, verse 11. You have heard of the patience of Job. When we experience the Gethsemanes of life, when we plead to the Lord as Jesus did for his will to be done, what we need to understand is God may be using these trials or these tribulations or these experiences to develop within us a spirit of patience or perseverance. Secondly, God could be using this particular Gethsemane in our life to help us discover perspective. Sometimes it takes difficulties for us to discover what's really important in life. Let me give you an illustration of this. Have you ever known anybody that's gone to the doctor and the doctor said, look, I've got some bad news. The bad news is you've got cancer. Well, the bad news is you've got some very grave illness. Let me tell you what. There are people in our world today, they've gone to a physician and they have heard those words. And maybe the focal point in their life had been their job. Maybe it had been some kind of recreational pursuit. Maybe it had been about making money. Maybe it had been about this or that. And then all of a sudden, when they go to the doctor and they hear those words, cancer, or some other type of grave illness, all of a sudden, there is a sense of clarity. In other words, adversity can help bring clarity to life. It can help us to focus in on those things that are most important. This morning we looked at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, where Solomon said, Fear God, keep His commandments. This is man's all. You experience a Gethsemane in your lifetime. And one of the things that you can draw from that is it will help you to discover perspective in life. It will help you to, to put life in perspective. It will help you to come to appreciate what life is all about. And I can promise you this. There are a lot of people in our world today, if you were to ask them what life, what's life all about, they couldn't for the life of them tell you. On the other hand, there are a lot of people that can. It's because they've experienced something like Gethsemane. A third lesson that I believe can be drawn from Gethsemane is that it deepens our faith and piety. You want to grow in your faith? 
You want to grow in your trust to the Lord? Then experience a Gethsemane. Here is Jesus on his knees praying to God the Father three times. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as, not as my will, not, not my will, but your will be done. You want to talk about faith and trust. I mentioned a moment ago Job. And I think about everything that Job experienced in, in his lifetime. Here's what Job said over in chapter 13, verse 15 in his, in his inspired book. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What about Paul when he, when he had a thorn in the flesh? You remember he besought the Lord three times that that thorn in the flesh would depart from him. And God responded by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. What, what was the Lord trying to say to the Apostle Paul? He was saying this. Paul, I want you to trust me more deeply. You and I, we have to learn to depend on Jehovah God. Not just in the good times, but also in the bad times. When we experience the Gethsemanes of life, it helps us to deepen our faith and piety. And then finally, I believe that the Gethsemanes of life will help us to dwell on God's providence and His promises. When you experience the Gethsemanes of life, one thing you have to realize is this, and that is that God is sovereign. He is over all. The psalmist said it like this, The Lord reigneth in Psalm 99 at verse 1. He, he is at work in the, in, in the affairs of mankind. Daniel said in the long ago that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. God is at work. When we experience the Gethsemanes of life, we need to understand that God in His providence is at work. We may not necessarily understand everything that we're undergoing or that we're facing in life, but we have to trust and believe that God in His providence is at work. And not just that, but also realize that there are some great promises that loom before us. Sometimes when we face the Gethsemanes of life, we come to the realization that this life is not, is not, is not what's most important. It helps us to look beyond this veil of tears. Think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. He went on to say, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen, he said, are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said, For we know that if the earthly house of our tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The Gethsemanes of life teach us that there's something far better that awaits us in the next realm, and that's heaven. So, we close by asking this question. Have you been to Gethsemane? If you haven't been to Gethsemane, just brace yourself. Because I can assure you, at some point in time in the future, 
you'll go to Gethsemane, just like Jesus did. And what I would encourage you to do is draw from the principles set forth by the Son of God when he bowed his head in prayer in that beautiful garden. Tonight we ask the question, are you living for the Lord? You know, life's tough. It's tough living in this world as a Christian. But it's a lot tougher if you're not in Christ. Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus came so that you might have a better way of life. What would you need to do to become a child of God? First of all, you need to believe that He is the Son of God. John 8, 24. The Bible says, then you need to repent of every sin. Luke 13, 3. And then confess Him before others. Matthew 10, 32. The Bible then says we are to be immersed in water for salvation. Mark 16, 16. It may be that you're here today. Maybe you're not faithful. Maybe you know that your life's not been what it should be. Maybe you have experienced a Gethsemane. And maybe because of that, you've left the faith. You know what? God wants you to come home. And you have that opportunity tonight to come. We'll be happy to pray with you and for you. James said, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And God will abundantly pardon. Would you come as we stand and sing?